Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honour among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will not have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Well, good morning, everyone. What a joy and privilege it is to have you join us today for our 1030 service. My name is Shabu. I'm one of the pastors at Canterbury. Uh, firstly, Phoebe and Hannah, thank you so much for doing the Bible reading for us this morning. If you're visiting us for the very first time, uh, we as a church have been taking our time through the book of Hebrews, and we have come to the very last chapter of this beautiful letter in Hebrews 13. This morning, what I want us to consider is this, uh, what a Jesus-centered life looks like. What a Jesus-centered life looks like, not just individually, but as a church community. So with that in mind, would you join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I come before you, and I ask that you would settle all our hearts, including mine. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would stir our hearts to hear what you're saying to us individually and corporately. May we walk away knowing you more. And Lord Jesus, I plead with you that it's all for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the last chapter I was saying in Hebrews 13. And if you've already read it or heard it already, you know it, it's filled with all these practical tips, it sounds like. It almost sounds like the writer is finishing off the letter or that was been sent out, or most likely would have been read out, and going, okay, I've got a few more things I want to just finish off with just to remind you again. So what's the purpose behind all this? I think this is the purpose, that it is to challenge this church what a Jesus-centered life 
looks like, both individually and as a church community. I mean, it began with chapter one, really. It was a reminder that they are reminded of who Jesus is and how much he's so much better and superior. They were reminded to keep going in the moments of perseverance and challenge that were to call to persevere in the trials that they had and the persecutions that they had. They were warned to not turn away from this gospel by who Jesus is and what he has done. They were reminded of those who've gone before them in the faith, that it's all about faith, it's about grace. Reminded again of the two mountains that we heard so well done well by Paul last week, challenging them not to go back to the two systems, to the previous system that they know, the, the system that's filled with fear, rather to come and to this new covenant under Jesus, that he's the one who has fulfilled it, that he provides not fear but joy and great celebration. And this is the moment, it's like almost finishing the letter and now going, so now what? The writer wants to move their gaze to now what? To what a Christ-centered life looks like, not just individually, but in community. Verses 1 to 6, the writer causes the gaze of their hearts and their wills to say, hey, now because of who Jesus is and what he has done, yes, you must love him. And because of your love towards him, now your love should be shown towards others. It begins with in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Do you know, one of the greatest threats in the Christian faith is not actually out there. It's always from within, and particularly in a Christian community. The threat always is from within when there is no brotherly love there at all. It's that moment or season in any church community, and particularly even in this context, there was probably likely some things already happening in this church community that's driving a wedge between family, between brothers and sisters in Christ, between brothers and sisters in Christ who, has, who Christ has died for them. And so what's happening potentially is that brotherly love is starting to not continue. And so the writer is encouraging them, please let brotherly love continue. Like I said, this is family language. This is family language to say, hey, these, these people that are in your church community, this, this family, they're actually much more than just acquaintances. They're actually people who have experienced the wonderful truth and grace of salvation in Jesus. They're not actually strangers, but they're family. They are, they have the, you have the great joy of seeing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is what it means by brotherly love. This church has been tempted, right? We already know this, to go back to what they know, to almost become exclusive. And what that might mean is that they end up not in, uh, having in fellowship with others who are different from them, who don't agree with them. No, the writer is reminding them, no, please let brotherly love continue. And please understand this is not a recommendation. This is a command because it's in God's word. The, the, the language here is so strong, it's saying you have to do this. Actually, you have to will to do this. It's saying, church, you have to do all you can to enhance brotherly love towards each other because of what you share, because of the common truth that you share in Jesus. You're not just people who are acquaintances, not even just friends. You're not just like people who attend the same church. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this is why the writer is saying, let it continue. Let that brotherly love continue towards each other. Do all that you can to enhance this brotherly love. Because the foundations are to be set, as we've seen in the previous chapters. Because if that, if that makes sense to them, sure, it's great to know all those things, that beautiful truth and great theology, but does it permeate into your heart and then is it shown towards each other? This is a reminder that the church family is not just something that we look individually. 
The challenge is to look at it as corporately. This is God's design. Another way to put it is, how does my actions of not showing brotherly love impact my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? How does it impact Jesus and his bride, the church? See, a Jesus-centered life is committed to showing brotherly love. This means for you and I, what is our brotherly love like towards one another? And I'm not talking just brotherly love to those people who are like us, maybe even in our church community. Brotherly love who are towards people who are indifferent in personality. Brotherly love even towards those who may have a different theological view than you and I on certain issues. Brotherly love towards those who have different upbringings or church background. Brotherly love towards those from even different ethnic backgrounds. Brotherly love towards who uh, have different types of jobs or, uh, you know, any kind of background that is different from us. What, are we continuing to show brotherly love? And even in our season in history, what's our brotherly love towards those who have different vaccination statuses than us? Friends, I could keep going on, but the point is... It's a reminder, and we've heard this all the way from Hebrews chapter 1 to chapter 13, that if they believe in these things just like you, they're much more than people who believe in some theology. They're actually fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So as we interact with them, we must do all that we can to enhance brotherly love towards each other. This is a command. This is a call. This is what... A Jesus-centered life, a, a Jesus-centered church looks like. We're called to will, to love one another. And as we do, it actually becomes a witness to a broken world. I remember many years ago, having a conversation with someone who did not know Jesus, and the thing that really stood out to them and I asked them, what do you find unique about the Christian faith? They said, I find it fascinating, people from different backgrounds if it's social, different job backgrounds, um, upbringing, schools, they all seem to get along. And the reason for that is because of Christ. Christ's love compels us to show brotherly love towards one another, just, Christ, just as Christ is our brother. So love from one another, then to hospitality to strangers. And who knows? You might end up uh, showing hospitality to angels. Now, you could go to a few places here, but I personally think in this context, particularly in Hebrews, uh, most likely the author is now reminding again, you know, when the uh, uh, Hebrew readers or hearers are hearing this, they're going, oh yeah, that's right. Abraham extended hospitality to strangers who ended up being angels and he did not realize that. Or there's the story of Gideon. Or there's the story of Manoah connected with Sam Samson. I nearly said salmon then. <laughs> or there may be literally stories of angels. People's stories have heard. People shown hospitality and realize. Who knows? But we don't get caught up on that. The point is show hospitality and big two strangers. Now, this is building from already what we've heard that brotherly love for each other also means there should be love towards those who are strangers. You know, one of the key markers of the Christian faith is hospitality. And particularly in this context, speaking about strangers and most likely even uh, strangers who are not Christians. The word here the author is using, there's a wordplay going on. It's really beautifully done. It's actually hospitality or love to strangers. What the writer is doing is, is to show what a Christ-centered life looks like, is to love one another because you love the family of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ, then also you love strangers. It's the very engine room, it's the very source that is Christian love, that is Christian hospitality, is soaked in love of God and love of others. This is why hospitality is much more than putting on this amazing feed with uh, so many beautiful, perfectly placed things and being able to Instagram it to show how amazing it looks. No, hospitality is much more than that. Hospitality means opening up your homes, perhaps even to strangers. 
even those who are brothers and sisters in Christ that you don't know, but they have commonality because of the faith, but also literally strangers who do not know who God is because there's a purpose behind it. There's a real purpose behind it. Now, when we think about hospitality, some of us are really gifted in that and God's gifted you to do that. Some of us, most of us may go, oh, I don't know, having people over to my house and so on. That's a good marker of what a Christian home looks like. Uh, another way to look at it is in your weekly schedule, and I'm not talking to inundate your calendar with lots of gatherings, just ask the question, are you and I, are we as a church known as people who are hospitable to even brothers and sisters in Christ or even to strangers? Well, what the writer is trying to get at here, it's not a guilt-driven thing. It's because of love. It's love-soaked hospitality. This is done in order for a purpose, that the people that we're showing hospitality to are in that moment experiencing God's grace through his people. It's over a meal, isn't it, friends? Or even just a biscuit or a cup of tea that we have those conversations that go beyond just the weather to the things about who God is and what he has done. For those of us who, who love hospitality, can I just also encourage you to remember it's not about getting the meal perfectly and amazing. It's ensuring that those who are there, including the strangers, experience God's love, get to hear about who Jesus is and what he has done through your hospitality. This is what a Jesus-centered life, a Jesus-centered community looks like. They're, they're hospitable to even strangers. And so the writer keeps moving, right, from loving each other to loving the stranger and now to loving those who are in prison, those who are being mistreated. This is a real serious moment because we've already been reminded earlier about those who may be in prison. It is also a reminder that following Jesus does not mean that everything will go perfect, that all life will be good. And most likely, even in this time, in this moment, persecution is slowly starting to rise. And there are people who've been thrown into jail because of their faith and including some of the apostles. And so this is to be a marker of the Christian community. This is what a Christ-centered Christian community, this is what a Christ-centered person looks like, remembers those who are in prison, to love those who are in prison. In church history, there's this beautiful quote written saying, if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of the Messiah, all of them provide for his needs, and if it is possible, he may be delivered. They deliver him. If there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and they have not an abundance of necessaries, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. From the Apology of Aristides. This was what was known of the Christian community then, and so this is also true for us today. What the writer is doing is actually connecting that language of let brotherly love continue by saying, hey, don't forget those who are in prison because of the gospel. They are actually your brothers and sisters in Christ. The writer is saying, we want you to consider it's as though you are in prison with them. We want you to consider that in that moment when they are being physically mistreated, it's as though you yourself are being physically mistreated. For brothers and sisters, as we heard about being praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted, it's a reminder to you and I that as brothers and sisters in Christ have been persecuted, literally thrown into jail, literally physically tormented and mistreated, we are invited to enter in their suffering. And the question is, do we consider that? In what way can we do that? In what way can we encourage those even in our family, including our kids, to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ in chains because of the gospel? This is what a Christ-centered church, this is what a Christ-centered life looks like. It has, once again, a view of others, particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in prison. So from love for each other, love for the stranger, to love those in prison and being tormented, and this is showing again what a Christ-centered life looks like, you have almost this random moment coming up. Well, I think it's random when I first read it. 
It feels as though it's like saying, okay, well, while I'm here, let me talk about a couple other things, marriage and money. The writer says you need to keep marriage and held in honor. And also reminds them your marriage bed cannot be, uh, uh, needs to be undefiled. And then there's this warning that God will judge if you don't do this. And then you have this reminder again that keep your life from the love of money. Notice the focus here. See, what the writer is doing, I think, is in this moment, uh, it's giving a countercultural view, if you want to put it our day in language. See, when marriage is self-focused, or the marriage ultimately becomes about the husband or the wife, or perhaps even the kids. When money and what money does is about self, then what we end up doing is that we end up loving money more than God and seeing it rather than a gift from him. What the writer is doing is giving ethics for life, what it means to have a Jesus-centered life, to have these things in its right place. Uh, in this context here, marriage would have had various views. So one view would have been that, yes, we need to keep marriage uh, pure as possible. So we abstain from any kind of sexual intercourse with the spouse. And so we live separately. We do these things in life in a particular way. And so we make sure we don't want to mess up. There was this sort of push for true purity that ultimately was about works. Not seeing as marriage to be honoured as God has designed it. And in church history, that led to various groups. And if you want to look that up in church history, you'll see that. The other thing was in the Greco-Roman world, church uh, marriage particularly was, would have been seen as just an agreement, maybe between two families or parties and so on. And so that meant beyond that, it was an exclusive relationship. You could actually pursue any kind of sexual fulfillment as you please. What the writer is doing in this moment is a reminder to the church a Jesus-centered life, a Jesus-centered community sees marriage as God has designed it and, the, and money as God has designed it. So this is why marriage has to be held in high honor among all, among all. It's a gift from him. And marriage and the very beautiful blessing of sex in marriage is actually God's gift between the husband and wife and no others. It's exclusive intimacy. This is why this is language here is so strong that the marriage bed is, need to be kept from any kind of immorality, particularly talking about any kind of immorality that is against God's design of what sex is about. Do you know the view of sex in Christian marriage is actually not selfish. It's about the other. And this is why this is language about being kept from any kind of adultery. That is, not committing any kind of adultery with anyone, whether in your heart, whether in your mind, or even physically. Because you're exclusively in a relationship with your spouse. Because this is the one God has given you. And this begs the question for you and I when we think about marriage, what is our view? Is our view formed by God's view of marriage or the culture around us? When we think about sex and sex in the context of marriage, what is our view of sex? Is it being influenced by the culture around us? Uh, friends, I just want to make a side note here. Uh, particularly in our season in history, there are many of you who are single. And I just want to just make it very clear to you being married does not make you even more accepted to God. You're already accepted to God because of Christ and what he has done for you. You have great value to him. Marriage is to be honoured. It is a gift from the Lord, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And I think sometimes in our Christian world, we lift up so much that those of us who are single feel that pinch every time. My hope and prayer is that God will comfort you to know that he loves you and adores you, whether if you're single, whether if you're widowed, whether if you're divorced, or whether if you're married. The whole point of marriage is to remember that it's about honouring God. 
And brothers and sisters, for those of us who've been married, whether you've been married for 12 months, five years, 50 years, that's not 50 years, by the way, the Christian marriage is there to be honoured. It is, it is a question for you and I every day to ask, for those of us who are married, is my marriage, is our marriage honouring God? If it's not, what needs to be done to honour God in your marriage? Do you need to seek counsel? Do you need to seek help? Do you need to confess to other brothers and sisters in Christ in order to pray for you, to encourage you? Brothers and sisters in Christ, when it comes to the topic of sex, we may run to various thoughts and ideas. Some of us don't want to talk about it, don't want to deal with it. Some of us are so obsessed by it. But what's going on here, we're being influenced by culture itself rather than how God has designed it and how he views it. The call to you and I is to know that sex is a gift, an exclusive gift from God to a married couple between a husband and a wife. Sisters and brothers, are you and I in any way committing sexual immorality or adultery? Are we watching those sites that we ought not to? And in doing so, we're actually committing sexual immorality and adultery against our spouse. Has the marriage bed and the topic of sex ultimately become about ourselves, what we need, rather than loving and serving one another? Friends, if you're stuck in this, if you're really struggling in this area, please don't isolate yourself. Come and talk to one of the pastors. We'd love to serve you and love you and pray with you, encourage you and consider for you to maybe even do counselling. The whole point of this is this is what a Christ centered marriage looks like and so from brotherly love to 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 love for strangers to to love those in prison to love displayed in marriage all wrapped around what a christ-centered life looks like this is a display of it and i don't know if you're picking up the theme it's starting to build up here it's outward it's focused on others we now move to not loving money more than god so the author is warning them following jesus will cost you and particularly in this culture, perhaps there were those who were well, um, were privileged, who had great, um, lots of money, and, and they were comfortable, but actually following Jesus is now starting to cost them, and they may be wanting more. And so perhaps they're losing their privileges as well. And the author is saying, hey, be content. Be content with when it comes to money, what God has already provided you. The language here is pretty strong. And the love of money means it becomes the very object that you are so focused on that you think about it more than you think about God. You think about it more than you think about showing brotherly love. You think about it more than caring for the strangers. You think about it more than caring for those who are in prison. And what ultimately it does is it leads to discontentment. Now, if you look at all those verses earlier about love for others, love for the strangers, love to those who are in prison, uh, even in marriage, that actually comes at a cost, even monetary cost. And so here the author is now tying it and saying, listen, don't be discontent. The Christian view is not to love money. The Christian view is to see it as a gift from God for his purposes. Because it is God who provides for us because of who he is. So here in this moment, the writer is quoting two Old Testament passages, as we've seen in Hebrews, always connecting it back to the Old Testament. You've got in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and Psalm 118. So firstly, Deuteronomy 31, this is when Moses says to Joshua, hey, take charge, I'm handing this over to you. And he's, he's giving this beautiful speech he reminds them, hey, look how God has always provided for his people. So be content. Why? And now the Hebrew writer connects and says, he won't leave you. He won't forsake you because you are his. You have covenant relationship with him. And that psalm again, if you read that psalm later in Psalm 118, there's this great um, refrain that goes through it called God's steadfast love. The writer is reminding this church to be content, to remember God's steadfast love towards his people. 
Even if when your very property or money is taken away, your very wealth is taken away, perhaps even your life, the question asks, what can man do to you? Because why? What can man do to you? Nothing. Because you belong to God because of Christ. Because of his steadfast love for you, he is the one who is your helper. So don't fear. Brothers and sisters, for those of us, we may have various views of money. The first view we must always remember, if you belong to Christ, that money is actually not yours. It's God's given to you as a gift. Do we feel in any way kind of discontent? Is there a sense of, we may not want money, is there material things, it may be statuses, whatever it might be that causes sort of discontent that we're always wanting more and more and more and more. Do we feel that it's up to us to provide for ourselves, to provide for our family, rather than resting that God will never leave you, God will not forsake you, because you belong to him in Christ. Are we resting that the Lord is our helper? That we do not need to fear what can man do to us? Particularly if we are his, we can actually rest and we can be content because of what Christ has done, what he has offered. To know that God will never leave us because of Christ. That he is our helper because of Christ. We do not need to fear what can man do to us so we can rest in this the invitation is to be content this is what a christ-centered life looks like what a jesus-centered life looks like that has um, brotherly love for uh, for one another that has love for strangers that has love for those in prison uh, that has a marriage that honors god that rejects the love of money and so you have these verses in front of us and now the writer continues and comes to verses 7 to 16. There's a reminder and command there to remember their leaders. And our leaders here, particularly in this context, are those who have been teaching them, who's brought the gospel to them, most likely the leaders and shepherds of that church. They've been asked to remember. Remember what was spoken to them, the things that they know of, that they've heard of, that reminds them of who Jesus is. Not only that, don't just remember them, but look at their life. That's very challenging. If you call yourself a leader at Canterbury Gardens, people ought to see your life. See, in this moment here, the writer's doing a beautiful job of saying, when self becomes the focus rather than Jesus, and then the focus of Jesus moves us towards other focus. So the leaders that God has actually placed over you in this church have a responsibility they've been given a job and so it is a reminder to them remember them but also remember their teaching but also look at their life and it's a reminder that for those who are in church leadership in the context here the writer is saying the markers should be shown already in the lives of these people how they love their brothers and sisters in christ how they love strangers what are their marriages like and how they uh, think about money. And this is the kind of life that has been challenged to look at. And so the writer wants to drill further and say, listen, remember your leaders, remember their teaching. Now, I want to now get your gaze again, why this is true, why this is important, to get their gaze again to Jesus, the one who is unchanging. What a wonderful truth, friends, is it not? That Jesus does not change. Seasons might change. Life might change. Roadmaps might change. But Jesus does not change. And it's a wonderful reminder of who God is. That he's unchanging. It's one of his very characters. And now it's been applied to who Jesus is. That he's unchanging. See, Jesus is the one who has been here yesterday, the one who was physically here on this earth, who cried out for help, who cried out for uh, loud cries and supplications and tears. Jesus is the one 
who is here now today, the one who is the high priest standing in the presence of the Father, who understands the very trials and challenges and our very weaknesses, the one who was tempted in every way but is without sin. Jesus is the one who is forever eternal, the one who is our priest eternally. Jesus does not change, and this ought to bring comfort to the church then and also to us. And this is the job of the leaders to remind them, to remind them of the one who is unchanging. And there's this warning, right? So, because Jesus is unchanging, be careful that you don't get, you know, led astray to, to strange teachings. And in this context here, yeah, most likely, is the strange teaching in relation to the Mosaic law and in regards to food and don't you eat certain things, all these kind of exclusive stuff that was back connected to the Old Testament, to think that doing those things somehow makes you right with God the, the commitment that's given here, or the challenge, should I say, is given here is don't be devoted to those things. In other words, you're devoted to Jesus, so don't be devoted to those strange teachings. But the invitation is for your very heart to be strengthened by grace. So as I said, there's probably this issue starting to come up, and so the writer is warning, saying, don't go back to that. Don't go back to that. And we see that, right? You see that in verse 11, the writer says, let me remind you why you shouldn't go back to that. You know, the very blood that was offered, the, that blood, that sacrifice in the day of atonement, and then the very bull that was sacrificed for the sin of people, where did that bull go? It got thrown, taken out, and it, got the, it was sent out of the camp. The writer's saying, hey, this is ultimately pointing to one who is Jesus. The one who himself suffered outside the gate in order to dedicate his people to God. Jesus himself suffered outside, and the invitation is a challenging one, that is, to this church, hey, don't get caught up in strange teachings that makes you feel safe and secure, and makes you feel like, hey, this is safe and secure, comfortable. No, no, no. What, what the writer is saying, hey, listen, don't get caught up on those things, because that the invitation is actually to come out of that safety. To come out of that safety and come and join in Jesus and his reproach. We've heard this, right? That is to come away from the very temporal city to the eternal one. Until then, the invitation is for the church then even for us to bring a better sacrifice. One that is filled with praise. The one that does good because ultimately it's not, it's ultimately about pleasing God. Friends, in this moment, in this, in this section here, there's so much richness there. It's to challenge our hearts to consider it again that a Jesus-centered life needs to consider what their view of church leadership is. Now, when we think about strange food laws and things, some of us might go, that's really weird. But the question is still true. What kind of strange teachings? That is, teachings that is counter to the gospel teachings that is counter to the essence of the gospel that's where this language of grace is right there in these verses is starting to seep into our world and our minds see one way to work that out is is there any kind of religious practice that has been encouraged in such a way that it's almost like a saving practice see a church or, or a Christian or, that is centered around Christ is so soaked in and being reminded over and over again. It's about grace. And so when you think about considering uh, the invitation of following Jesus, it means actually you and I are called to become not an insider, but actually an outsider. To come and bear the very reproach that Jesus endured. The writer is saying that following Jesus is actually more than just following Jesus. It means walking a particular road. It's walking a road that says, I will die to myself daily to join Jesus in his suffering. 
But all of this is not based on us and what we do. It's based on what has already been done. It's Jesus' sanctifying work. Friends, if this is true, a Christ-centered life, a Jesus-centered life, is called to enter in with Jesus in his suffering, it reminds us again that this is not our home, that we seek the better city that is to come, one that is eternal. And with all of this, the invitation is there, right? Through Jesus, we're invited to offer a particular kind of sacrifice, not an animal sacrifice, one that's much better. One that is been invited to be done is to bring is to bring a sacrifice that is there because of what Jesus has done. A sacrifice of praise. This is language of worship with all of your being. And then it is shown outwardly. And we've already been seeing that. Let brotherly love continue. And here it's the, the command is given, do not neglect to do good. Why? Because it pleases God. It's all good to know that you are saved by Christ. It's wonderful and you should rest in that. But then it should be displayed outwardly because of what Christ has done be displayed in the way that you live, the way that I live. This is one of the markers of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And understand this again, this is not a works thing, it's actually a grace truth in that it's about because of what Jesus has done, that a person's heart, a church community's heart is so captured by what he has done, it should move them to other-based love. So otherly based love, that the focus is always others. Do you see, this is the invitation of what it means to be a Jesus-centered life, to be a Jesus-centered church. And finally, the writer comes again to verse 17, about talking about leadership. Now, it's really interesting, love the way the writer's done this. It's like what they call a sandwich, right? On one hand, you start with leadership, Second hand, uh, the other ending verse is his leadership again, and right in the middle, this is beautiful theology of who Jesus is, what he's done. Uh, he's gone in the outside out of the gates, and we're invited to be in that suffering, then we're to live that out and rest in that and to do good. And then there's this wonderful truth, again, being reminded of what the importance of leadership is in a church. See, what's going on here is the church needs to understand that to grow in this, there's actually a responsibility on them as a church community. But there's also a responsibility on the leaders that God has placed over them. Firstly, the responsibility of the church or that community is that they are to obey their leaders and they are to submit to their leaders. When we hear this language of submission and obeying your leaders, and particularly in the context of church leadership, some of us may say, yeah, okay, I get it. I know I, I should and I ought to. But I wonder if this is resistance that builds up in us for some reason. Some of us, sadly, have experienced where, whether in other churches where, or experiences where there's been Christian leaders who have used the word of obey and submission for abuse. And if that is you, I am deeply, deeply sorry, and we grieve with you that has been your experience in church leadership. Some of us are all okay for church leadership, and we agree with it theologically, and we agree the importance of that. But when the church leadership desires to lead you or shepherd you, no thanks. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I need you to hear this. As one of the pastors of this church and was the elder, one of the elders of this church, and any of the elders here, I want you to know that we, we feel and sense the heaviness of this task that's laid on us by our Lord. What is that? To keep watch over your souls. To keep watch over your souls. Because there's a day coming that Jesus will say, Shabu, elders of Canterbury Gardens Community Church, 
What have you done with my people? I'll be honest with you, as I've been reflecting on these verses over the last few weeks, it is both a wonderful joy and privilege, but at times I, it's an overwhelming burden. Yet this is the call of what it means to be a leader in a church. We ought to feel and sense that heaviness. God hasn't sort of hidden that. He wants it to make it very clear it's a serious task. I mean, the language here is so, um, it's really powerful. The way that the writer's written it is to say, it's as though that church leader is having sleepless nights as they watch over the souls of those God is called to lead. So the question then to the church then and to us, will we do this in submission obedience will we do this in such a way that it brings joy to the leaders or does it bring complaints and that is the truth even for you and i today this is what a jesus-centered church a jesus-centered life looks like when it comes to church leadership uh, look i'm going to be pretty blunt here being a leader at canterbury gardens comes with so much beautiful joy and has moments of complaints. There is beautiful moments of joy when we see the gospel take deep root in the lives of you, seeing that transformation happen, knowing that many of us have prayed for you and cried out to the Lord for you and seeing that truth grow in a person's life, it brings us such great joy. And there are moments of groaning. There are those of us in perhaps even in this church community who struggle to be led by the leaders of this church. The writer is making it very clear this is the reality. And friends, if you're joining Canterbury Gardens, it's a beautiful uh, reminder. I want you to know we're not a perfect church. But we believe in a perfect Savior who is gracious to his bride. And under him, he's placed leaders to watch over your souls. Because we will give an account. And um, there are moments. I've, I say this, please hear me. This is not to make it sound like, wow, but no. There have been moments that have been, been kept awake. We have a church directory and names. There are moments when I look at those names. I see the family names and I see the kids. There are moments where I've had to fall on my knees and say, Lord, grow in this church a love for you, a love for your son. We care for you, Canary Gardens. We deeply yearn and pray and plead with our saviour that we want you to be captured by the beauty of who jesus is and this beauty of who jesus is compels you to love one another to love the lost and just as it's here would you pray for us pray that we would serve jesus indeed with a clear conscience that our very actions that are done will be done in such an honourable way that it brings glory to him. And finally, this is only possible, just as we've heard, that the gospel of Jesus needs to take deep root in the life of a person and that grace of Christ should just overwhelmingly consume their hearts. You have this beautiful prayer in verses 20 to 21. It's a prayer that reminds this church, God is the one who has made it possible. God is the one who alone has made it possible for peace with him through Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. The one who is the great shepherd of his sheep. The one who has given his church a far better eternal covenant. The one who equips us with everything good in order to do his will. The one who works in us to live lives pleasing in his sight 
through Jesus alone, to him be glory forever and ever. Friends, what do you need to notice in these verses, in concluding verses, the very centre of this prayer is that it's God-focused. It's Jesus who's the source, and it's all for his glory. In other words, it's not about us. This is the very essence and marker of a Jesus-centered life, a Jesus-centered church. It is nothing about us. I mean, we've already seen this, right? In Hebrews, the very heart of it is how Jesus is greater, as the one who's greater, the one that we are called to worship and be in awe of. And as that grows in us, as that moves us to worship him, to live and serve him, it should actually move us to make life less about ourselves, displayed in a particular way. A Jesus-centered life, it's about loving one another. A Jesus-centered life is about showing hospitality. A Jesus-centered life suffers with those who suffer. A Jesus-centered life submits to leaders. A Jesus-centered life lives for the city that is to come. A Jesus-centered church is marked by all of these things. This is the way of following Jesus. Hebrews is a wonderful reminder in the work of Christ that you and I are in need of a gracious and mighty Saviour. And Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is far more superior than anything that has ever gone before, than anything that will ever come. Jesus reminds us that you and I are in need of redemption. Jesus reminds us through Hebrews that we have been warned not to turn away, but look to the one who has gone before us. Jesus encouraged us, us all to persevere. This is the road that we've been called to follow, followers of Christ. Therefore, let us live lives that are centered around Jesus alone, for his glory alone. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we come before your throne of grace. We worship you for who you are and what you have done. May we live lives marked by these truths in all areas of our lives, from our love for others, the love for strangers, the love for those who are being persecuted for the faith, in our marriage, in the way that we deal with money, how we submit to godly leaders and for the wonderful truth Jesus for what you have purchased as the one who went out of the city who sacrificed himself on our behalf and now is the risen one who does not change empower us Holy Spirit to live for Jesus' glory for his fame in Jesus name Amen.